This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, welcome, and thanks to everyone joining us today from Portugal, Canada, Argentina, Brazil, Scotland, Australia, Italy, South Africa, and all around the world. I'm Naomi Murakawa. I'm the author of The First Civil Right, How Liberals Built Prison America, and I'm moderating today's conversation. Before I introduce Ruth Wilson Gilmore, I want to thank the organizer and sponsor of this teach-in, Haymarket Books. Haymarket is the publisher of a new series called The Abolitionist Papers. I'm the series editor, and I'm proud that the inaugural publication for the series is Dr. Gilmore's forthcoming book, Change Everything, Racial Capitalism and the Case for Abolition. Some responses to COVID-19 foretell a future that is only doubling down on criminalization, the policing of national and subnational borders, and even more surveillance now sold to us with the message that total surveillance is good medicine. But as we try to imagine a different world, and as we fight for our abolitionist future, there is no one I'd rather hear from than Ruth Wilson Gilmore. She is the co-founder of many organizations, including California Prison Moratorium Project, Critical Resistance, and the Central California Environmental Justice Network. She's professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences at CUNY Graduate Center. Dr. Gilmore is the author of Golden Gulag, Prisons, Surplus, Crisis, and Opposition in Globalizing California. It's a brilliant study that locates prisons as the foundation of a new kind of state, the anti-state state, where elites dismiss the idea that government can or should guarantee social well-being. Her work has been featured in dozens of journals and books, including Versos, Policing the Planet, edited by Jordan Camp and Christina Heatherton. And her new book, Change Everything, Racial Capitalism and the Case for Abolition, is forthcoming with Haymarket in February 2021. Thanks so much for being in this live stream, Ruthie. Thank you for having me. With COVID-19, many are pointing out that detention is death. Can you start us off by giving us the bigger picture on the relationship between prisons and inequality? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, my dear friend, Catherine McKittrick, who I think is listening from somewhere in greater Toronto, recently cited the fantastic poet and lawyer, M. Norbeza Philip. Norbeza said, if we were truly all in this together, we would not all be in this together. And this is a message I think that we can use as our starting point tonight in talking about COVID-19 mass incarceration and the struggle for abolition. Mass incarceration and the related forms of detention that uh, connect to it is a feature of places that have the deepest inequality, the deepest inequality. And we have one slide to show you tonight. 
um, a slide that shows a list of the founding nations of NATO. Now, this slide, which was created by the Prison Policy Initiative, perhaps the greatest data collection, visualization, and spreading organization in the United States and one of the great ones of the world, shows us that even in the context of the NATO of NATO's founding organizations, the United States is off the chart, mm -hmm. quite literally off the chart. And what holds this together? What holds together the possibility of mass incarceration in the richest country in the history of the world is a combination of organized abandonment, which is to say austerity, and organized violence, which is to say criminalization, policing, prisons, detention, deportation. Now, we can take the slide down if people are... are um, satisfied with its image. We could, but we're not going to tonight, also look at images from the BRICS, that is to say from Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And we would see a similar pattern emerging where no one, no country is remotely close to the United States, but as Russia and uh, other countries of the BRICS have followed increasingly neoliberal policies, which is to say the policies of organized abandonment, the policies of austerity, we see the number of people locked up rise and rise and rise. Mm -hmm. But as I said, the United States remains off the charts. That said, abolition actually is not a recitation of catastrophe or a culture of complaint. Indeed, catastrophe and complaint, if that's all we do, are the kinds of practices that induce in many people who are listening what my friend, the historian Daryl Scott calls contempt and pity. And abolition is not looking for contempt or pity. What we are doing rather is this. We're trying in every possible way to find a way to politics that rather than being distinguished by, as the sociologist and novelist Edouard Louis says, uh, politics distinguished by style, we're looking for politics that really are grounded in the struggle over life and death. So Edouard Louis is a French, young French writer, and he wrote a fantastic book I recommend to everybody called Who Killed My Father? And it's in this book that he makes this distinction, politics as style as against politics as life and death. So what does politics as life and death mean for abolition? Well, abolition is presence. It's already happening in so many ways, in so many places around the world. And many of the people who are listening in tonight and watching tonight are already doing the work and are stumped as many of us are because so many of us are under some version of shelter in place slash house arrest and yet the work continues. Now, CLR James teaches us that revolutions happen because people 
are so conservative. Conservative. He says they wait and wait and try every little thing until one day people come out in the street and clear up in a matter of years the disorder of centuries. Now, when Arundhati Roy says that COVID-19 is a portal, this might be the portal through which people who are doing all kinds of little things mm-hmm. of various kinds around the world come out and clear up the disorder of centuries. My uh, friend and comrade Ayana Maria of Rust Belt Abolition Radio lifted up a mention I made the other night of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense motto, Survival Pending Revolution. And she thought and named a discussion that a few of us had on Rust Belt Abolition Radio the other day um, that we could think of what we do as survival pending abolition, survival pending abolition. So that means that the work behind and the work ahead is very, very long. I'll give you an example. Um, In Los Angeles County, decades ago, the ACLU brought a conditions of confinement case against the county for the horrendous conditions in the jails. Over the years, the ACLU was in charge of of taking care, uh, keeping an eye on what the county did to remedy the horrific conditions. About 18 years ago, the ACLU invited a few abolitionists to come and talk to them about something they had never imagined, which was perhaps the way to remedy The problem with the L.A. County jails was not to have a jail at all, rather than to build a better jail. Slowly but surely, this way of understanding became central to the struggle in Los Angeles County over those jails. Sixteen years later, abolitionists who joined forces with the forces of reform, managed to persuade the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, one of the biggest governments by number of people in the United States, not to build new jails, but rather to put the billions of dollars that would have gone into that into housing, healthcare, and other life-affirming projects. So abolition is long, abolition is presence. Abolition is how we connect with, form, grow from, and multiply organizations that have the capacity to lift the movement. I learned from Vijay Prashad many years ago that our main work we who are talking heads sometimes on Skype, our main work is to lift the movement, not to lead it, to lift it. To lift it by showing how anti-domestic violence people are central to the formation of abolition uh, as a movement. 
that mutual aid organizations, which are now flourishing everywhere because of the emergency of COVID-19, that unions, food, healthcare, nurses, building trades, all of these organizations have become in one way or another connected with the movement in the direction of abolition because abolition is about abolishing the conditions under which prison became the solution to problems rather than abolishing the buildings we call prisons. There are faith organizations, neighborhood organizations, artists organizations, tenant organizations, prisoners organizations, inside and out, libraries, environmental justice, legal aid, transit workers, rights advocates, public health advocates, bail funds, you name it, large and small. All of these people are coming together in various configurations around the world to try to relieve the stress of organized abandonment and its realization as organ through organized violence by changing the world in which we live. So that is the big picture that connects inequality with abolition and mass incarceration. Okay, so here we are, decades deep in organized violence and organized abandonment. And now enter the COVID-19 pandemic. What are the political possibilities now? And what might the pandemic mean for the future of criminalization, police and prisons? Well, certainly the pandemic is focusing everybody's mind. There's nothing like fear to focus the mind. And the fear has uh, many, many aspects to it. And therefore the responses that people are putting together are um, in many ways quite astonishing. Uh, for example, um, just to take one uh, very pointed uh, case, some uh, people, I think mostly students at New York University Law School, put together a sheet, uh, a guide for uh, all of the state jurisdictions and the Federal Bureau of Prisons in the country to show who actually has the authority to release people so that people uh, who are organizing on the ground could focus using this power map on those who could in uh, a brief amount of time make the decision to release people. Uh, what we know about mass incarceration is that it is class war. And it is, as class war, very tightly knotted to the vulnerabilities that the types of organizations I listed a few minutes ago and the kinds of organizing they do are trying to relieve. Labor unions are trying to relieve certain kinds of vulnerabilities, as are housing advocates, as are prisoner rights advocates, as are people who are incarcerated, who are advocating on their own behalf, families, communities, and so forth. We could spend some time perhaps uh, thinking about the fact that in the United States, over the period that mass incarceration has become this catch-all solution for a wide array of social, economic, 
behavioral and other problems, the number of prison beds has gone up as the number of hospital beds has gone down. That the, the, the movement in the opposite direction is quite startling to me. And as many people have pointed out, those who are against and those who are for the um, configuration of hospital and healthcare in the United States today, we still see the fact that many, many areas of the U.S. are underserved, if served at all. Places that have the capacity to take care of people are overwhelmed because of the of cuts to hospital and healthcare. And the workers who are uh, working in hospitals, working in transportation, working in all of the sinews of the system to try to keep people whose lives are in danger from becoming sick and dying are struggling with inadequate resources when the resources could be there. So what can we think about in terms of organizing now? Certainly a lot of the work that uh, many people have done uh, concerning rural workers, vulnerabilities, should and can be lifted up now. Whether we're talking about the MST in Brazil and the landless workers who have been organizing for years, both to have access to land, to produce food and well-being and to live and have shelter, but who have also built an enormous um, educational program for themselves and others that has uh, very strong international connections throughout this hemisphere and indeed around the world. Or in the U.S. South, the Highlander Center, which in Tennessee since the 1920s has been a central place for uh, uh, organization, anti-racist, pro-working class organization. And they will have a a program on, I think, right after we log off tonight, starting at seven o'clock on the Black Freedom Movement, seven o'clock Eastern time. Um, Similarly, when we think about housing, uh, I I can give a fantastic story about a young abolitionist artist called Sheena Griffiths, who's based in New Orleans. So after Katrina destroyed a good deal of everyday life in New Orleans, and then the anti-state state came through and destroyed what hadn't already been destroyed by the floods and uh, the rot, Shana and some of her comrades got together and said, we are going to create a housing trust so that a few households at least could have a safe, secure and pleasant place to live. So they knocked themselves out learning, learning how to make a trust, how to take land out of the market, found the place they wanted to buy, raised the money to buy the place, did all of this, all the paperwork. And when they were finished, What Shana Griffith had to say about it was, we did do this, we helped ourselves, and this tells me that the state we need is the one that will do this. We actually need that state that belongs to us, rather than think that we can do this ourselves for each other. We need 
the pro-state state, not the anti-state state. Other possibilities with respect to COVID-19 connect with the various kinds of things that people are doing immediately to try to get people out of prison and jail or to look after people who have gotten out who are vulnerable because they uh, need shelter or food or other kinds of um, uh, sustenance. So there are bail funds that have sprung up around the United States. They aren't new with COVID-19, but they are more urgently, of course, uh, reaching out and raising money. We know that in Cook County, in Chicago, uh, Shayla Grant and uh, the, the comrades that she has been working with over the years have done an enormously wonderful job getting people out of Cook County jail. This is a good thing to do. And yet we also know that in the last four weeks, 22 million people in the United States lost their jobs. That means the need couldn't be greater for people to have the wherewithal to pay rent, to buy food, and so forth. There's less, as we say, discretionary cash available to help out with a bail fund. And therefore, like Shana Griffith discovered in the work that she did in New Orleans, we have to make demands on the social wage, which is our right and our requirement of ourselves. From around the world, there are examples of uh, artists such as the Mulheres de Pedra in Rio de Janeiro, radical educators here in uh, Portugal, Plataforma Ghetto, the Detroit Justice Center, uh, people who have been working with Mi Gente, uh, working on behalf of uh, undocumented people, long distance migrants all over the United States, Cop Watch in Frankfurt, uh, disability organizers whose work has been so beautifully pulled together by Liet Ben Moshi, uh, people doing work on food, the Uptown People's Law Center, also in Chicago. Many, many people have been working to try to extend protections and opportunities and see that in this emergency is exactly the time not to say these people are deserving, those people are not, but rather to say, if indeed in four weeks, 22 million people in the United States have lost their jobs, that means many of us with jobs, precariously employed, uh, steadily employed or unemployed who must join forces together rather than imagine that we can prevail by breaking ourselves up into smaller and smaller groups. Great. Um, I wanted to turn more specifically to some current calls for decarceration in light of COVID-19. So you've cautioned us against using conventional dividing lines that mark nonviolent versus violent or low risk versus high risk, in short, sympathetic versus unsympathetic. Um, some of these lines seem to be hardening with COVID-19. Can you explain why it's problematic to demand decarceration using these categories? Well, first and foremost, we should always plan to win. 
And if we plan to win, we should ask ourselves, what happens next in the event of victory? And if what happens next in the event of victory is that the people who have been rightly uh, released are the only ones who could ever be released, then we will not have won. Do I say leave people, everybody inside? Of course not. But I do say this. Most people who go to prison leave prison. Most people are not doing life sentences. There should not be any life sentences. And in most parts of the world, there aren't life sentences. But most people do leave prison. So rather than imagining that there is a magical line between less guilty and more guilty or more innocent or less innocent or more deserving or less deserving, or I will say violent and nonviolent, we should say, why not take seriously the fact that most people leave prison, do a little bit of analysis to see that we could be closing prisons already and jails already if we just cut by two weeks and three weeks and four weeks, much less years, the kinds of sentences people are serving, and then move on to the work of undoing organized abandonment. As I, uh, the example that I gave to you from uh, Los Angeles County, this is not an impossible um, uh, challenge. It did take a long time in Los Angeles. The next time shouldn't take as long. Um, it shouldn't take as long because of what we learned. It shouldn't take as long because Los Angeles can model behavior that other polities can follow. Um, Amilcar Cabral, who is one of the most important thinkers, organizers, leaders, revolutionaries of, of my consciousness, taught us um, or cautioned us, I should say, against claiming easy victories. And he's absolutely right. That said, we should gather all of our victories and then stop and think about them and say, what is this victory going to make possible next? Why do these victories matter? Who have we abandoned? Who have we used our own capacity for organized violence against in order not to include them in victory? So I'll give an example from New York City. New York City plans to build, to spend $11 billion building four new jails. This is the so-called closed Rikers project. The mayor yesterday or today announced that the city budget, ravaged as it is by the effects of COVID-19, will shrink by $2 billion. $11 billion for prisons, $2 billion less for everything the city needs. This is really straightforward. The mayor can learn from Los Angeles County do not build the new jails, close Rikers, use the resources, the money and human resources that would have gone into that entire um, array of, of um, carceral institutions that people would be organizing to close just as people organized to close Rikers, which was opened because people organized to close 
the institution that preceded Rikers, the mayor and the city council can use the money for the well-being of a city that has indeed been ravaged by unemployment, ravaged by the highest number of deaths from COVID-19. How can that be? How can that be? Turning a corner has to happen now because where life is precious, life is precious. Um, a young organizer and thinker who uh, uh, has an entire story of his own to tell called Micah Herskind uh, just published a piece in which he argues really beautifully about, you know, what is this high risk, low risk, no risk? There are people, there are humans, period. There are humans, period. Um, the late Randy Martin wrote a wonderful book about risk some years ago in which he said the world is, is under neoliberalism is dividing into these two categories, people who are risk so they get locked up and people who can bear risk so they get mortgages. And we can see now with the economic collapse that is uh, hastened by the kind of political uh, leadership and normalized thinking, which is to say the domination, if not hegemony, of neoliberalism tells us that where life is not precious, life is not precious. And that is the corner we have to turn. Um, as the death counts have been rising, people have called on your definition of racism as a way to name and to understand what's happening right now. You've written that racism is, quote, the state sanctioned and or extra legal production and exploitation of group differentiated vulnerability to premature death. Can you elaborate? Well, that's already a mouthful, but let me see what I can do. <laughs> I will be happy to elaborate. And the first thing I want to say about that definition is uh, to um, caution people about falling into the trap of the performance effect. And what do I mean? I mean, people look at me and say, oh, in the United States, she's black. That means if she talks about racism, she talk, she's talking about what happens to black people. Or they think, oh, that definition means black people have it the worst. No. What that definition tries to do and seems to do for people as far in as uh, very places as Australia and Argentina and Mexico, uh, Brazil, South Africa, many, many places where people have used, put, operationalized that definition to try to think about what's happening uh, in the world. Um, what the definition helps them do is to think about the design of things the design of relationships, whether the relationships be to jobs, to housing, to transportation, to health, to the justice system, to uh, security in gender identity, to age, to vulnerability in old age and well-being as children. 
that this definition lets people start to think systematically so that it's possible to see how various groups come into being, Mm -hmm. come into being, and therefore then become naturally um, available for organizing and struggle. That's what that definition's for. Um, So I'll give you some examples. Um, The design of the public health system in the United States, and I think this is true throughout a good deal of the overdeveloped world, as well as a good deal of the world that, although dominated by um, resource extraction, still went through several rounds of governmental organization in the 20th century that put into place large-scale, complex governmental institutions designed to extract value from labor and land. So things like public health. Public health was such a project of elites in the 20th century. And so the design of public health, as we learn from people like Nayan Shah and Samuel Kelton Roberts and others, um, put laid out a framework of care and disregard that itself has um, amplified over time so that if today we say certain kinds of people are more likely to have underlying conditions that make them vulnerable to COVID-19 death, the issue is not, is there something objectively pathological about a person or a group of people, but rather how has the design of a public health system and the wherewithal to make it to enliven it in practice, brought some people in and pushed some people out over time. So tomorrow afternoon at I think at 2.30 in uh, Eastern time, U.S. time, Kenyon Farrell, long time uh, organizer, uh, AIDS activist, economic justice activist, just activist, once upon a time critical resistance um, uh, organizer will be in conversation with Tamara Knopper, the visionary sociologist who is the best at at thinking about data and thinking data visualization for the purpose of um, strengthening people and movements. So that conversation will happen tomorrow. Um, And I want to say something else in thinking about my definition of racism, and that is that we must all beware bad statistics as the um, statistical analyst and educator Ivory Toldson tells us over and over again. We have to beware of bad statistics and at the same time beware of the presumption that to recite vulnerability is somehow persuasive. If we say 50% of or 3% as against 1%, that somehow that's going to persuade people to action. Um, That 
in my experience, especially years ago when I was uh, doing some outreach work with young people in high school who uh, we were trying to kind of bring into the early days of critical resistance abolition, and I and others talked to a group of mostly brown and black young people and taught and one of their teachers said, well, one in three young black man is going to go to prison. Right. Well, first of all, it turned out that statistic didn't hold any water. But let us even say it was true. What young person sitting in the auditorium in 1998 would be encouraged to listen and act if these scoldy older people came in and said, you are doomed. You are doomed. So to go back to what the purpose of um, my definition of racism is, the purpose of the definition is to enable people to think about collectivities whose vulnerability might then lead to uh, joining forces in order to overcome that vulnerability and do something else. Uh, example is uh, water. Everywhere around the planet, people are struggling over water. So at the moment, uh, on the Navajo Nation, the Navajo Nation has become a hotspot for COVID-19 in part because of the scarcity of water. People can't do this simple thing we're all told to do, which is wash our hands. Um, the Navajo Nation uh, obviously brings to mind then the people who had organized at Standing Rock, and uh, the no DAPL uh, pipeline people who have been trying to get people to understand that the anti-pipeline organizing has everything to do with protecting the land and particularly protecting water. So that struggle and the struggle that um, produces, or the, excuse me, the vulnerability around inadequate water that produces um, likelihood of premature death connects the Navajo Nation with Flint, Michigan, and with Detroit, and the work that the Detroit Justice Center is doing with people in Australia, where the, especially after the fires of last year, the problem of adequate water and adequate nutrition is, is quite enormous. The fact that Cape Town, the city of Cape Town in South Africa has been on the verge of running out of water for some time now on the verge of running out of water for some time now, and so forth. So all of these um, uh, concerns about water thought through the lens of my definition of racism, I hope provide people with a sense of the opportunity to join forces to fight racism by fighting for water, to fight racism by fighting against prison, to fight racism by fighting for housing, rather than to fight against people's attitudes I don't really care what anybody thinks of me as long as they stay out of my way. Yes. Um, okay, so I am going to bring in some audience questions. Um, before I do, I wanted to remind everyone about some upcoming Haymarket events. Again, on Sunday, Krista Franklin's superb new book of poetry and images 
Too Much Midnight. And that launch is being hosted by Mahogany L. Brown. And on Wednesday, a teaching on the remaking of schools in the time of coronavirus with Wayne Now, Jesse Hagopian, and Noliwi Rooks. And on Thursday, a week from today, Arundhati Roy in conversation with Amani Perry. You can register for all at Eventbrite. Um, and you can check them out at Haymarket on their webpage. Haymarket is doing really incredible work, crucial work, work that's feeding the international left and the radical imagination. If you're in a position to make a donation, no matter how small, please consider giving to Haymarket through Venmo and haymarketbooks.org and consider giving to abolitionist groups like Critical Resistance at criticalresistance.org. Um, so Ruthie, maybe I'll give you a, a couple questions and you can select as okay. you feel your appetite. Um, so, uh, Karen Aguilar San Juan asks, does abolition also apply to war? And I thought possibly you could elaborate also the military industrial complex and how you're thinking about the prison industrial complex. Um, that's one for the taking, if you'd like. There are also a few really good questions that are asking for um, just some more breaking down of um, what is meant by decarceration and if there's a meaningful contrast here that you're trying to draw between decarceration and abolition. Okay, well, let me take Karen. Karen's, uh, Karen's an old friend from way back. <laughs> I will take that question. We haven't seen each other in 10 years, maybe. Yeah, 10 years, 10 years. Um, war, absolutely. So let me talk a little bit about the military industrial complex and the prison industrial complex. And it's really kind of interesting that we've gotten this far in our discussion. And I think had not said prison industrial complex once, which is kind of great. Um, so some of us, uh, inspired mainly by Mike Davis and an article he published in The Nation, in 1994, I think, maybe five, um, started to think about uh, what we didn't yet call mass incarceration. So we started to think about how come there are so many people in prison and how come there are so many new laws and how come the sentences have gotten so long and how come there are so many new prisons everywhere? So those were all the questions that animated us. Um, Mike, said is, ask the question, is there a prison industrial complex? And in playing off the concept of military industrial complex, he was inviting people to think about things that I even think he may, might not have thought about at the outset, which is to say, if we think about the military industrial complex, we think not only about the people who go to war, but we have to think about the intellectuals who design the public policy that determines when the US, for example, will use diplomacy and when it will send troops. It means that um, 
The military industrial complex means all of the people, engineers and designers and ordnance makers and so forth, who design the machinery of industrialized killing. And then the Pentagon that contracts for the machinery of industrialized killing to be made and made ready. The military industrial complex includes all of the bases spread around the United States and around the world, around the world. There are more than 800 U.S. bases around the world. It's not the only military around the world, but there is no military that has such a wide representation on the surface of the planet than the U.S. military. Uh, the military industrial complex also uh, includes uh, all of the people who are, you know, residents of towns that are near bases and the boosters who want to have more of the jobs that for civilians that, that come with the bases and the people who work in the factories that make the ordnance and the bombs and so on and so forth. All of that is the MIC. And if all of that is the military industrial complex, the people who make the laws, the people who make the, who design the policies, the people who design the weapons, the people who are actually uniformed and civilian personnel who enliven the whole thing. By extension, the prison industrial complex has the same complexity and that is not to muddy the water, but rather to clarify that there are all these different places to fight. That we can fight in rural America where people in many cases welcomed new prisons thinking the prison was going to bring jobs and save their rural hospital. Neither thing happened. Or the people who imagine that the only kind of future they can have as first-generation college students is to major in criminal justice of one kind or another and hope to become a police officer or a prison guard or a worker in that environment rather than a teacher or an artist or something else that the same amount of education could produce. Um, Uses of land, uses of resources, uses of money and relationships between and among people are all involved in prison industrial complex. So that's a long way, long wind up to saying uh, in answer to Karen's question, absolutely, absolutely. Abolition really does require that we change one thing, which is everything, which is what the title of that book is about everything. So there are some young, um, young from my point of view, I just turned 70, but some young lawyers, um, legal scholars, and also practicing lawyers, uh, including a young woman who is doing a postdoc uh, at Cornell, who have been doing all kinds of legal work in the various hot zones of the so-called war on terror around the world for a long time. For example, in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border and in the Horn of Africa and elsewhere. And this uh, one particular young lawyer, Zora Ahmed said, I think 
that the principles of abolition, as I have come to understand them through the combination of insight women of color against violence put together with critical resistance, gives us the basis for thinking about how to take abolition into the most difficult struggles outside of prison and detention, which are the struggles from ground to the air of hot war and the complexities of those struggles. That, as she put it, it's not as though we can say there's a drone which is bad and everyone on the ground is not. Rather, all of these relations have gotten so messed up over time that we have to sort them out. And that is the way to sort them, sort them out. So, yes, abolition does, in a word, extend to war. Um, there are a lot of really excellent um, smart, non-trolly audience questions. Um, Zach Stiles asked, how can abolitionist praxis be applied by folks in the U.S. to support Palestinians under occupation? Well, Zach, you probably already know the answer to this question. And if you were sitting in front of me, I would ask you to answer it. Um, there is so much mutual aid that extends across the barriers of occupation, of war, of, uh, of struggle that goes in both directions. So it's not as though people in the United States are exclusively in the position to offer help that people who are in the occupied territories are exclusively in the position to require help. I don't think that that is um, the way to think. And I know for a fact that that's not how, how things have gone. So, for example, um, during the very, very uh, active days in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, at the time that Black Lives Matter is becoming more and more a feature of how people understood the need to protest without cessation over uh, the fact of uh, police killings of people in this country. Young people and people of all ages, I should say, in Ferguson learned from people in solidarity in Palestine how to deal with tear gas. So that's just one example. There are other examples as well. But I think perhaps the, the heart of the question is, how can we reach through walls that seem to be so solid? You know, what are the modes of communication, of solidarity, of struggle that we can put into practice? And to come back to the U.S., and I'm not turning my back in any way on Palestine, a place I visited, gosh, 30 years ago, almost to the week, um, is uh, to talk about how some of the very small things that people do, if they're done persistently, start to add up to something bigger. So for example, uh, to go back to that concept, survival pending abolition, survival pending abolition. Uh, 
the fact not only that people have worked very, very hard to create bail funds and other um, uh, money resources to help people get out of being locked up, but also that people are sending care packages inside and sending them over and over and over again so that people who are inside who are not uh, expecting to be bailed or to be released anytime soon can have some of what they need to uh, safeguard their lives. And what comes with the care package is the fact of care. And this is not a small thing. It's a big thing. The solidarity is built in care. And I don't mean a kind of sentimental, although sometimes sentiment's okay, but a sentimental, oh, I care about you because you are needy. Because as I said at the beginning of our conversation, neither contempt nor pity is going to get us anywhere. Rather, the constant interactions that come from sending in care packages or teaching in a, in a program or writing to people who are in occupied territories or being in solidarity with the women's artist group and in uh, Rio de Janeiro that is organizing the favelas against Bolsonaro on the one hand and the various paramilitaries on the other, means that we build the kind of uh, communication and uh, trust, which is to say we know the people will be there again when we need them to do more, to do more. So. Uh, some examples of this sort of work uh, over the years have included the kind of ongoing effort that um, people like Jerry Silva have done in Los Angeles, where she has helped uh, to form one organization after another after another, being absolutely undaunted by what seems to be an insurmountable problem, which is to say the problem of um, how to end mass incarceration and end detention. And as well, the problem of solidarity means that uh, we have a promise built into it. And the promise is to think about the edges of our struggle not as limits, but as the beginning of the next struggle as well. That an edge is also an interface. So if we want to think after borders, then we have to live as though borders can go. Yes. Um, some really um, Excellent questions on indigenous liberation and the indigenous struggle. One from Margot Tamez, who asks, is it possible for the decarceration movement and abolitionist practice to be applied to the indigenous struggle against the so-called border wall and logics of settler colonial dispossession and erasure? That's a great question. Um, my friend Nick Estes has written a little bit about this in a piece that well, at least in one version of a piece that he published in Leopold Lambert's uh, journal, The Funambulist. And uh, Nick's piece is called Freedom is a Place. Uh, and full disclosure, 
that phrase, freedom is a place, comes from my work. And Nick does the work. Uh, Nick, who's one of the founders of Red Nation, who's uh, based uh, in Albuquerque uh, these days, uh, from Dakota, Lakota. Uh, Nick does the work of showing how Indigenous struggles for decolonization and is abolitionist or abolitionist struggle must be decolonial. I teach in a decolonial summer school every year. I don't know if we'll meet this year because of COVID. And this is uh, an ongoing discussion that I have with activists and um, intellectuals from around the planet. We talk about the continuum of abolition and decolonization, rather than that abolition is one set of struggles that have to do with people regaining their freedom in the context of a nation state that doesn't go away and decolonization is a separate struggle because it's a struggle for people to undo the colonial presence that has structured their lives for generations. These things must come together to make freedom be a place. Um, you're getting some questions about um, current, uh, uptick, current upticks in um, repression, in surveillance, so uh, one question comes in the form of what are we to make of the current situation of suspending civil liberties to prevent the spread of COVID and the associated police enforcement of COVID rela related legislation. And then uh, a related question from Catherine Dace, can you comment on the increasing trend towards home arrest and incarceration via surveillance technologies? Sure. And the latter question actually informs any answer to the former question. And that is, uh, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier when I uh, was talking about the importance of planning to win. And for many people, for good reason, the idea of making sure that loved ones, or indeed for individuals, they themselves, would not be locked up in a building somewhere else with bars on the windows and bars on the doors and all of that, led to or enabled the uh, expansion of what my friend James Kilgore calls e-carceration, electronic carceration. So years ago, when I was trying to put together a talk about this, and I Googled, um, you know, ankle shackle, but what you Google actually is ankle bracelet, like it's jewelry rather than shackle, which is what it is. When I Googled it, it always turned up Martha Stewart, like Martha Stewart, you know, famous felon, blonde, rich, felon, white woman, felon. And so... Uh, the, the idea that, oh, well, this is a much preferable way to be incarcerated because you can be at home. And uh, how, how, how much better is that than to be in a, in a cell with somebody quickly showed itself to be the nightmare that it is. That the lives of people who are subjected to incarceration 
are incredibly shrunken. Um, although they are living in their own homes or their parents' homes or their whoever is taking them in, their scope of activity is extremely limited. And they are not only not actually living a life for which they are responsible, such as parents for their children or children for their aging parents or workers for their jobs, but also the fact of incarceration is a cost to the person who's wearing the shackle. And it takes, essentially, it's an insatiable system that sucks time and money from individuals, households, and communities. So Maya Shenwar and Vicki Law have just written a book about this, published by the New Press. It just came out, I think, last week, called uh, Prison by Another Name, I think is the title. But you can learn about that. And so the, the spread of this kind of surveillance, control, arrest, I think is likely unless we organize against it. Probably the most important word I've used all evening is organize. Organize, organize, organize. Everything else is just noise if we're not organizing. But if we're not organizing in such a way that each victory, large or small, whether it's getting a care package into somebody or getting New York City to close Rikers and not build the four new jails, or it is uh, achieving relief for the people of Gaza, or it is getting water to Cape Town, whatever it is. Uh, if in, in the absence of organization, nothing will be done. So the question is, what kinds of organizations already exist that do the sort of work that will lead to the goals that we need? Do those organizations have currently the capacity to do more than what they're doing? If they don't, can people help and expand that capacity? If they have the capacity, but, for example, as is the case with many public sector unions, have had, um, uh, in some cases, leadership that has encouraged, uh, for example, uh, luxury housing development as against uh, working class housing development, then is it possible not to fight the union, but from within to change the union and change the direction? We saw this happen with uh, the, the biggest local of the, the then SEIU in California, when the California State Employees Association turned against prison expansion, even though they had members who would lose jobs, because they realized that their larger unions remit in the world was about making life better for people in communities, for people working in public sector work, for people who did home health care, for people who did everything else, and they realized that they would be very happy, content, I should say, to lose some jobs in prison if those resources and the people who were entrapped by those resources could be free to do something else. So these are the the, the kinds of things that we have to do. We have a lot of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Many, many people 
produce lots of good work that we can use for what the environmental justice uh, scholar Rochelle Morello Frosch calls data judo. Data judo. Data judo is when you might know something about the vulnerability of, say, men in their 40s in Brooklyn who are likely to suffer the ravages of COVID-19 because of this, that, or the other underlying condition. Just announcing the fact of that vulnerability doesn't do anything. But if we get to a point where the forces that can make certain kinds of decisions, including the decision to organize, are arrayed in the right way, then busting out with the data is exactly the way to flip what is into what could be. That's why she called it data judo. So a lot of the research that many people do, and this is not just people who are in schools, but many people in schools, is work that people can use later. But and it's work that is available, free, and should be used by organizations to build organizing. Um, there's there are some many organizers on this call, so I want to make sure you get some of their questions. Um, really applied, thoughtful questions. Um, so one question, which is many of us organizers are fighting against government officials using our woeful re-entry infrastructure as a cynical excuse to keep people incarcerated. What would you say to them? I, I don't know if I get bleeped if I use a swear word. But <laughs> let's just say I would say bleep. <laughs> And then it's this, uh, who comes to mind in answering this question? Who comes to mind in answering this question are a couple of my 19th century uh, main people. Um, and those are Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman. So what would Sojourner say? What would Harriet say? What did Sojourner Truth do? Um, New York State, where she was enslaved in New York State, New York State set out a program of gradual emancipation. And uh, so there were benchmarks and you had to achieve a certain age or have been uh, uh, apprenticed to the person formerly known as the person who thought they owned you before you you, the enslaved person, could be free. So Isabella von Vonnegut, who we know as Sojourner Truth, one day said, I call bleep on all this, and she left. She just left. She left. So when, when government officials say, well, gosh, the reason we can't let more people out is we're not ready for them, we're ready. We're as ready as we're ever going to be. What does that mean? It means that we have to struggle over the question of shelter. We have to struggle over the question of food. And the fact that 22 more people are without employment as were four weeks ago means that all 22 million plus two and a half million in prison plus everybody else should be struggling together, should be struggling together. Um, this gradualism 
that is all the rage and certainly uh, strongly endorsed by you know many kinds of uh, think tanks and um, uh, large uh, research institutions is an absurdity. And it is the same absurdity which we must resist and refuse politically as the one that says the way we fix what's wrong in New York is to build these four new jails or the way we fix the problem of people getting sick and dying in prisons in the UK is to flip the prisons from being privately run to publicly run. Nobody's going to live any longer in a publicly run prison. People have to not be in prison. Or the, the, the way to uh, resolve the problem of mass uh, detention of, uh, of, of immigrants, again, is to get rid of the po- private contracts. Nobody gets to go home when the contract goes. What we have to do is fight for what is right. Now, those words that I just shared with you are really quite general. The question is, is it possible to return to the table again and again and again and make the same demands? This is what is necessary. This is what is necessary. And none of it will happen very quickly. But while certain uh, people who are given the um, Uh, advantage of being able to editorialize in mainstream media, say, well, there must be a way we can balance out about bail and blah, blah, blah. No, that is not the answer. It's not the answer. And it's really quite scary to insist on what the answer should be. It is. It is. And we've all learned something that I would like us to unlearn, and it's this. I think that over the years, over the decades that the, what did you call it, Naomi, the prison pandemic grew, that people were trying over and over and over again to figure out a way to speak it into illegitimacy. And that the way to speak it into illegitimacy was to point out its many flaws. Now, I have done this, too. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying other people did something wrong and I never did it. Of course I did it. So people would say prison was designed for men, so it's bad for women. People would say prison is for adults and it's bad for children or people prison is for people who are healthy. And so it's bad for vulnerable people or prison is for people who are have uh, ordinary kinds of abilities. Therefore, it's difficult for disabled people or prison is based in a two gender system. So it's difficult for gender nonconforming people. All those things are true, but prison isn't good for anybody. So like that healthy uh, heterosexual man with, uh, you know, generally no difficulties in getting around and so on and so forth, it's not good for him either. 
right? It's bad. But I think that the search for how to speak an illegitimacy into being came from uh, a struggle that many people have had in the beginning of the 21st century over what on earth do we mean anymore by rights? What is it? I mean, you wrote a book called The First Civil Right. What are we talking about when we talk about rights? Civil rights or human rights? Either one. Why does it matter for us to talk about rights? How can we undo this scourge by raising up a concept that seems to be fundamental to the scourge itself? This is, this is I think, where a lot of people are at. And so... I think what's happened is a lot of us were trying very hard to figure out who was relatively speaking more innocent so that in the logical system of mass incarceration itself, it would be possible to identify the people who shouldn't be there. That was a mistake. It was, it was no more or less a mistake than telling young people, uh, young black men 22 years ago, you're going to go to prison unless you join our group, right? That either, either one, it's just, it's not, it was not doing the work we wanted it to do. So today, rather than go along with uh, a, dis, uh, a way of talking about prison that, and detention, that seems to suggest we can identify the relatively innocent and then do something on their behalf that we would never do for everybody else, we have to step back and say, this entire system is corrupt and it kills people. It compels people to die. We can see it right now with COVID-19. And therefore, what are we going to do? And we have to say it over and over and over and over and over again. That's what I think. I love that. I want to say that over and over again right now um, in thinking about all the range of work that's tried to um, talk its way into the illegitimacy of the prison. It does strike me that so much of what's been happening for the last 20 years has done the work of saying um, prison fails by its own standard, which is it doesn't actually reduce crime. Um, prison is too expensive. Um, those logics are off the mark. And that's also built a sort of way of thinking and speaking that in some, I think actually puts us on really, especially terrible footing, weak ground for the fight that's coming ahead. I agree. Um, okay. Th there are many, many excellent questions. Um, I also just, I know it's so strange to just keep talking with no real feedback. So I want to let you know you are getting all kinds of exclamation points. And yes, thank you. The toxicity <laughs> of criminal justice major in colleges um, and questions about all manner of thing. Um, how do we fight the anti-state state in higher education? Um, and, and there are a lot of questions about the distinction between the anti-state state and the pro-state state. Um, I, I think maybe I'll, I'll 
you can take those. I also want to combine maybe two two final questions, which are sort of um, big break questions, both from Annie Coe. Um, so she asks, how do we break the logic of borders and cages? And also, how do we break the economic and emotional logic of prisons? Huh, I think I wrote a book about the economic and emotional logic of prisons. And I don't know, I don't know, Annie Coe, if it, if it gave you the level of how-to that you would like. But the end of that book of Golden Gulag, What is to be Done, is a kind of how-to. It's, it's laid out as 10 theses because I, you know, secretly wish that I were um, uh, the kind of person whose theses other people <laughs> would repeat. <laughs> but um, the point of the ending of that book was to lift up the various struggles so that people could look into the struggle and see, oh, I can see something like this somewhere else. Maybe I can do this thing. I can see something like this somewhere else. Maybe I can do this thing. And if I ever, ever, ever finish a new edition of that book, I will make that all much more um, heavy handed, let's say, uh, than, than perhaps that I did. So how, how to fight? How to fight is the question, I think. And how to fight has everything to do with Figuring out, again, what do people who are already organized do? Is it possible for what they're already doing to be connected to this radical vision of a future for all of us? How would that connection happen? Like what knots those things together and how can we trace the not. So, for example, uh, I cannot say that the people who organized the Ch Chicago teachers strike, the Los Angeles Unified School District teachers strike, the teachers strike in West Virginia and the other teachers strikes. I cannot say that any one of those people in their pre-meetings, their meetings, the way they persuaded each other, they took the vote. They decided to strike. They went at a great risk to themselves. There's risk and struck. I don't know that one of them used the word abolition. And yet it's abolition work because it is refusing organized abandonment. It is refusing austerity. It is demanding a future that has some sense of the um, voluptuous beauty that life should hold, all of those things. So I was in Chicago during the Chicago strike last fall and I gave a talk and I said what I just said to you now. I don't know that the teachers thought they were doing abolition work, but I think they're doing it. Well, word spread throughout the striking teachers saying, right on, right on. I mean, there are these moments where Consciousness opens, and I don't mean I open theirs. I mean, in our coming together, the teachers and me there 
in Chicago, all of our consciousness is opened. And that made it possible for us to think about doing things we might not have thought about before. Because, and this is an important thing, at the bottom, what matters is consciousness, not experience. If it were only experience, then the sum total of experience would lead to somewhere that we don't seem to be going. Rather, it's the consciousness of what the experience means and what the possibilities are for joining forces across struggles, or even as is the case with many individuals, finding all of their many struggles coming together in them, which is true of so many people, that that the, the multiple struggles that each of us live is what we're trying to figure out how to bring together and move forward with. The late, great Rose Brass, who was one of the founders of Critical Resistance and somebody I think about every single day, would say to us always when we would be dreaming up a new campaign or dreaming up a new organization, she would always say, we have to be bolder. We have to be bolder. And she was the organizer's organizer. I mean, one who took took, uh, great pride in attention to detail and who would make 400 phone calls and knowing that 12 people might call her back, drove everywhere, did all of these things. She, in the midst of that kind of organizing smarts, would always say, we have to be bolder. We have to be bolder. And that's what we have to do. And so the economic and the emotional uh, uh, sort of downward drag that prison has on people are things that we can bit by bit push off through organizing. The example that I gave of the public sector uh, union in California is an example of people who said, "Okay, economically, we have this much dependence on that but so much more in all other aspects of everyday life. And I'm thinking a lot about essential workers, um, the people who have been going to work every day, who have not been exempted, which is say, been told to stay home. So they're people who are still getting paychecks, but are working long hours at great, 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 um, uh, greatly vulnerable to COVID-19. So what is it about the essential workers? What are they like? They are, many of them, not all of them, modestly educated people in the prime of life. That is, demographically speaking, what prison holds. Modestly educated people in the prime of life. Then, many essential workers are also people with skills, that are needed, you know, in the hospital and elsewhere. When they open the schools, the teachers will be suddenly the essential workers as well. This is the backbone of, I think, the next great labor movement in the U.S., in the U.K. and beyond. All of the people who see so starkly what the organized abandonment has meant when at a time, to go back to Norbeza Philip, the poet's beautiful words, if we were truly all in this together, we would not all be in this together. If anyone knows it as the essential workers, including the artists, 
Well, I want to recommend to everyone who can look at the New York Times that the great artist Shaleen Rodriguez is one of 17 or so New York artists who was asked to um, share in the newspaper a drawing from her window and uh, or a drawing of of being sheltering in place during COVID. And she attached to her drawing a demand for rent strikes. So not a, oh, I alone in my house see things that I never saw before. And this is nothing against the other artists who seem to be quite talented. But Shaleen put her capacity for visual expression through drawing with her insistence on what it is that we need now. And that's really what we need. are all here, I think, because we want to do. So this is true then for our friends in Australia, Debbie Kilroy, I think you're on the line from Brisbane, and our friends in South Africa, our friends in, in Brazil, I think Livia and Michelle Isal, sure there, and our friends here in Portugal, and shout out to Vanessa in Frankfurt, and Lambel and Deb Coles, and Mo in uh, the UK in London, maybe Mo is actually in Belfast now, Roisin Davis in Belfast, and others. You know, we've got this international stretch. We've got the consciousness. We've got the need. We know what's wrong with the world. And so the question is how we do the work to turn the world green, which it should be, mm -hmm. and to turn it green, to turn it red, which it must be. And in order to do those things, to make it the international, it should always be. Can I ask you to elaborate on green? And maybe here I'll just, um, is it okay if I share the AOC um, meditation that you and I went through before this conversation? Is that a pure to? All right. So um, in, in thinking about the question of um, commonly used language that, that draws lines that implies deserving or undeserving or points out all of the people in jail who don't have criminal convictions, um, I thought about selecting a quote from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, as to use as a sort of gloss for why it's troubling to think in those terms. And uh, part of the reason we backed away from it is that um, uh, we didn't want people thinking that there are these sharp dividing lines between an abolitionist who calls themselves an abolitionist and someone who's working and organizing and has bold, radical, awesome ideas who may from time to time use this language in, in speaking about certain things that um, that we may have some critique with. So on that, I was hoping you could talk about the Green New Deal and what makes the Green New Deal an abolitionist idea. Sure. Well, you know, I'm, I've already become a revisionist a little bit on the Green New Deal. I like green because green says climate change is a catastrophe. Um, that said, I actually am quite uh, um, taken by the revisions to the Green New Deal that Red Nation has done in putting forward their Red New Deal. 
And so that's Red Nation Red. And so the other red that I'm talking about is red in which to each according to his ability and from each, uh, excuse me, to each according to his need and from each according to his ability. Um, the idea, the urgency of rebuilding an economy that is not based in fossil fuels, endless extraction, and uh, deepening inequality between people and places is absolutely urgent. And I do think that AOC sees that urgency and she, unlike many people who get to be where she is, says what she means over and over and over again. So I am not about to um, uh, disrespect in any way what AOC has accomplished to date. The problem with one of the quotations that Naomi and I went back and forth about was that um, uh, AOC, like many people, uh, presents the necessity of decarcerating people uh, which is a step toward abolition to answer that question I never answered rather than abolition itself. Decarcerating people and throwing them on the street is not abolition. It's just decarceration. But the necessity to decarcerate people uh, seems to encourage folks to say, use words like safely or, you know, here are the eligible or that person who was the first to die in Rikers was there on this minor thing. Stop thinking that way. As I said, most people leave prison anyway. Mm -hmm. So why don't we think about that as opening the door or the portal, let's use Arundhati Roy's word, opening a portal that takes us away, again, from organized abandonment and our own habits of reinforcing organized abandonment, even at the moment when we think we're opposing it by saying, oh, we can fix this thing, but not for everybody. Mm-hmm. Not for everybody. Rather than saying, we should fix this thing. Let's make it as expansive as possible, as quickly as possible. And to get away from not only the um, the notion that some people are more deserving than others of the possibility of actually living a life, get away from that at the same time that we get away from, and I know that my brothers and sisters and cousins and and loved ones who are all over the other side of the equator, let's say, will appreciate this. Get away from pathologizing places because people are poor or pathologizing places because uh, in media, whether it's mainstream or social, one has learned something about a certain um, vulnerability that some group of people might have to one or another or another uh, mode of arriving at premature death, rather than think about what is going on underneath that's structurally to be addressed so that this vulnerability to premature death is finally put aside. 
So there are, you know, social movement organizing in South Africa that have been going on for uh, decades and decades among people for whom the end of apartheid was only the beginning, not the achievement of the world that people wanted to live. So I've learned from uh, uh, all kinds of people who've been organizing social movements in South Africa about what possibilities are. There are people in Tanzania who are trying to figure out how to maintain a certain kind level of self-determination in the face of a new kind of geopolitical relation between the Horn and the People's Republic of China. In, and that relationship in terms of the well-being of everyday people on the ground. Mm-hmm not in terms of the elites who all go to Switzerland to talk to each other anyway. <laughs> so, you know, these are some of the questions that, that come to mind. But Green, yeah. All right. Um, we do need to wrap it up. Okay. Um, I want to give you the final word. Um, I'll just sign off by saying, Krista Franklin, Too Much Midnight this Sunday. Also, thank you to Haymarket Books for all of the fantastic work that you're doing. Also, thank you for everyone who joined on this call. Thank you for all of your thoughtful questions. And finally, thank you to the brilliant and beautiful Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who gets the final word. Well, thank you, Naomi. And thanks everybody for for tuning in from all over the world. Um, I think I wanna leave us with Uh, a sentence that I've been repeating for many years that involves a repetition. And that is where life is precious, life is precious. So straightforward and makes me think about what it takes to make life precious. And that making of life precious um, arises through all different um, kinds of struggles. So there are strikes, there are slippages, but I also wanted to leave out with uh, something that I, I learned just recently, and this is my last thing, and that is the art of care and conviviality. Um, that uh, a person I, I know who was recently released from uh, being locked up tells me that they and the other people in their immediate area in the prison, it started singing a lot. They were singing, and the singing was bringing them a sense of being in the world that they didn't have before. And that reminded me of the freedom riders who got locked up in Parchment Prison, another place that needs to close, who sang themselves through a terrifying time. So we shall overcome, but only by building our movement. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.